Hey, everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. And we're live. Hello, everybody. Hey, everyone. Hey, Josh. Hey, Lisa. Oh, and welcome to the Dark Ozarks. It is Wednesday evening, and we have a fun topic. We do, and I think a a very yeah hoodoo. What kind of hoodoo do you do? That's right. <laughs> I love the title. I really do. That was all you, Lisa. That's all. Oh, thanks. And there's lots of hoodoos. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and lots of, uh, of context and a lot of history and a lot of lore coming from a variety of, of uh, sources, some of yeah. which might prove surprising. I, I just realized I looked it up. Um, I kind of knew it was happening anyway, but this is this is the last Dark Ozarks broadcast of the summer of 2022 that's correct (laughs) (laughs) the the autumnal equinox takes place uh tomorrow at 803 p.m central standard time and which means the next time that you see us it will be autumn and i'm excited i am too um we've been kicking things off a little bit already and um very quickly, why don't we just run down upcoming events? Uh, and for information on everything, you can go to paranormalsciencelab.com for uh, information and tickets. Absolutely. And uh, first off, uh, we're going to be in Caney, Kansas on Saturday. Yeah. And that's a free event. Yes. Uh, Paracon, I believe, as the, yes, uh, the border, the border town yes. Paracon. Yes, um, with Southeast Kansas, and I'm I'm just I'm just you know publicly coming clean. Huge confession on my part. This is the first uh, Paracon I've ever been to. Eh, well, we, I mean, we've done mysterious war states. It's pretty much, but okay. It, it, yeah. it, I just I just think of that as like our 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 uh, uh, fun gathering at the Coleman in Miami, Oklahoma. Yeah. Now, now th- this will be more of the sort of a little more traditional Paracon format. So um, it's free. Come out. Uh, there's going to be lots of people there, lots of topics. So um, and it's in the little Ozarks of Kansas. So, yes, it is. I request zebra cakes backstage. OK. <laughs> request away. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing that out there into the ether. I'd like a box of zebra cakes with my name on it. Oh, I can get them at the dollar store. You heard that, And okay, and, and uh, I'll let you do the rundown. I'll I'll I'll, I'll be quiet for a moment. We've got a, a full slate of autumnal events coming up. We do, uh, and we we hit the ground running again October seventh in downtown Hollister, Missouri. 
for the Hollister Haunted Walking Tour, um, which is in conjunction with the First Friday Art Walk. And we're going to be touring the Old English Inn. There's going to be ghost tales and other um, entertainment. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Then on October 15th, we are in Joplin for Dark Ozarks October Country uh, at the VFW 534. It's an all-day event covering pretty much everything under our, our uh, umbrella for Dark Ozarks. And lots of things going on. Then on October 20th, we are back in Joplin for the old Joplin downtown walking tour, which covers the wild history and ghost tales of early Joplin. And that is a conjunction with Third Thursday Art Walk, which um, is put on by Joplin Downtown Alliance, and we are pleased to work with them. Then on October 29th, we are in Natonia, Missouri, for a tour and investigation at the Ritchie Mansion and a tour of the Civil War Cemetery. And there's going to be all kinds of things going on in there as well. So uh, October is going to be full. Uh, oh, I should say, um, just on the calendar, uh, October 27th uh, will be uh, the, the uh, yearly spook tour with uh, Kids 102.5 in Joplin. October 28th is uh, Halloween festivities in Hollister. Yes. And I don't know. I don't know if we're doing something that night or not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure either. It's uh, <laughs> we're, we're playing that one by ear right at the moment. I think it, it has a bit to do with how quickly the October 7th date sells out and it is selling tickets. It is. It's selling through. We uh, I just saw a notice today of four more tickets selling. So um, so we are getting. um we aren't sold out, but it's it's starting to creep up there. So if you're interested in that event, I would get your tickets um, before it gets too late. Yes. Um, then in November, November 19th, we have two events in one day. Um, in the afternoon, two to four, we will be at Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri for book signing for you and I. Then that night, we will be at the Web City uh, Library for tour and investigation, uh, proceeds helping the library. Uh, and that's always a great event. So it's a, it's a pretty full slate. It is a full slate. Very excited about that. And <clears throat> we are certainly being uh, definitely assisted by this by two really phenomenal sponsors. We are always buying books in Joplin, Missouri, um, and they are the sponsor for uh, the event on the October 15th, the uh, Darko's Arts October Country, uh, as well as Beard Engine Brewing Company in uh, Alba, Missouri. So we are we are very appreciative and as well as um, our um our venture with Branson uh, Podcast Network, where you can catch our podcast. 100%. So excited about all of this, really, and uh, so appreciative of the folks who have reached out and become part of the, the sponsorship team. It's a lot of fun, certainly, but it also opens doors uh, for us to do events, and uh, I, I'm thrilled. Quickly, the uh, I say that, and then I take a long pause. Great. Uh, it's been a long day. 
and it has been. And uh, my new favorite we were place. On the radio. We were on the radio 12 hours ago. <laughs> yes, yes, we were. Oh, my gosh. Had coffee then, have coffee now. It's a beautiful circle of caffeinated life. And, <clears throat> and we'll, we'll get into that in here in just a second. But uh, my new favorite place to buy books is always buying books. And uh, just picked up uh, a new title that you picked up for me yeah. uh, because Bob advertised it online. I looked at it and said, I want it. And it proved popular because there's only two copies of this. And uh, the first one had already sold. It, it had. And, and to someone you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're truly. <laughs> Bob was rather amused when, when I went in to pick up your book. Um, so strongly recommend following uh, Always Buying Books in Joplin. There's a great Facebook group uh, as well as the Facebook page. And mm-hmm. if you have questions, you can reach out to them. Also, the um, uh, the Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri, as well as the Alba Press, which is uh, where you get your your paninis and also and I still want a grilled cheese sandwich and a black beer. That's on the list for next time. It, uh, it it's a beautiful location. It's haunted. We did a, a, a investigative survey there a couple of weeks ago, and there's so much history packed into such a comparatively small space. Alba's not a big town. No. Uh, I can't wait to go back. Me either. And, you know, we're going to have some more announcements in, in conjunction with that coming soon. So mm-hmm. uh, things to come. So uh, yes. very exciting. <clears throat> and uh, so <sighs> we'll see if my <laughs> we'll see if my functional cognitive <laughs> cognitive powers uh, dissipate over the course of the evening. Um, I picked you up in front of the admittedly haunted Old English Inn in downtown Hollister, Missouri. In the six o'clock hour a.m. this morning. And thankfully you brought me coffee. (laughs) I did. (laughs) And uh, then we made our way over uh, to the fantastic radio headquarters of Branson Podcast Network to step into uh, the recording room and also the broadcast room with Josh Grisham. Yes, and that that was a lot of fun. And... uh, Proving to be a fun, um, uh, a fun venture, joint venture um, with the radio stations down there, and uh, um, we would the podcast would, wouldn't uh, wouldn't make it uh, uh, live if it weren't for him. So, absolutely, <laughs> yes, he's the one who has to hit the publish button. <laughs> We uh, we appreciate all of their hard work, and we're excited to be uh, to be partnered uh, on that mass uh, communication platform. We do. Uh, we we certainly are. So go check out uh, BransonPodcastNetwork.com. Uh, if you're in the Branson area, certainly listen to to the stations, and um, uh, more to come there. Very much, and uh, just briefly. Saturday was State of the Ozarks Fest 22. Yes. And we made it. <laughs> we made it. It was it, it was a long day, but it, it certainly was fun. It was a uh, huge, huge public turnout. Um, 
actually, I counted, I was put together an article this afternoon and I did a quick, uh, actually specific final count, 87 separate booths filled on the street. Yeah, it was, there were, there was a lot going on and, a, you know, the crowd was big. We were busy all day. Um, uh, with the say those arts and darko's arts booths and um just thank everybody absolutely so so appreciate everyone coming out oh, and uh already working on the well september 16th 2023 is already getting penciled in on the calendar uh, i'll start stressing about that momentarily but this week i'm just focused on the fact that it's done it was successful most everyone was happy and uh, it was our largest and most well-attended event yet. Yay. And yeah, it was, it was great. So <laughs> can't wait till next year. Oh, absolutely. So lots of great opportunities to get to meet us in person because it, we're just that exciting. And uh, we get to meet... <laughs> We get to meet you all as well, which we look forward to. Uh, go to paranormalsciencelab.com for more information, as well as in some cases, uh, ticket information. And it's also important for people to know that uh, a large chunk of the proceeds, when it is a ticketed event, a large chunk of the proceeds go to help the historic structure that is the centerpiece of the event. So not only can you have a really cool event and have a lot of fun at what we're doing, but uh, you can also be helping uh, preserve uh, historic locations for the next generation. Yes. And um, with that, hoodoo. Mm-hmm. I do love some hoodoo. Uh, <clears throat> probably being facetious, but I am particularly fan. Uh, fascinated by the study and practice of hoodoo. And it's, it's, even in its specificity, because hoodoo is separate from voodoo, and that's yeah. important to understand, that there's really unique uh, sources uh, historically and culturally for hoodoo. And those, of course, the uh, a, a primary source uh, originates very similarly to voodoo, which is, I think, one of the reasons for the uh, misconception that they're the same thing, and that is uh, West African animist religious tradition. Yes, and I, I guess uh, if, if people are you know, saying, what is the difference between hoodoo and voodoo, they, they both are have religious aspects. Um, voodoo, the re religion, is much more... Um, specified and rigid. It is Catholicism. Basically, you have hoodoo, and then you add Catholicism to it, and you have voodoo to a large extent. To, it, to it, yes, is a, is a really you know mm, broad view. Just to, to broad, help you yeah. Um, without trying without trying to do a graduate level survey course on, on the difference. <laughs> right we're saving but, that for the, we're saving that for the subscribers later tonight yep <laughs> and the uh, and hoodoo tends to i mean it's very spiritual it views um the practice as use you know using them in manipulating spiritual energies um through practice 
Um, whereas there's a much more um, ritualistic aspect of voodoo that a lot of it does come from the Catholic Church um, and those practices. Um, yeah. and, so, and of course, there, there's, uh, and and we'll we'll cover some of this tonight here on the long format. But there, there's some very important and understandable socio-political reasons uh, and cultural reasons for that, particularly yeah. in, of course, uh, Haiti and Santo Domingo, and mm-hmm. uh, and then neat crossover. Now, other other elements that I think set Hoodoo apart are uh, a, a admittedly existent influence from essentially poor white Europeans. Yes, that, that very much true. That and that that is something that oftentimes gets overlooked in the the larger discussion. You know, we we have. You know, and understanding that uh, individuals were leaving Europe for a variety of reasons, some uh, seeking, you know, simply better economic, uh, you know, opportunity, but many for the fact that they were being uh, persecuted for their religion, Huguenots being uh, a great example of that. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, the, the, you know, to perhaps a lesser degree, the uh, the Puritans, uh, et cetera, the pilgrims. Uh, <laughs> I think to a certain degree that, you know, the, the some sentiment in England being, let's just get them over to the other side of the Atlantic and they can do their thing over there, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, some of the more bloody things that you know, were, were happening contemporarily. But Huguenots, again, come to mind, yeah. as well as uh, Quakers. And that's a, uh-huh. a big uh, story. I just found out recently a lot of my uh, um, uh, Heston ancestors had strong ties to uh, Quakers. So that's not surprising. So, actually, some some of my my family did as well, as well as some of the Huguenots. So. And uh, I actually know a, a Huguenot family descendants that are here in the oh. uh, as well. And uh, <laughs> one of uh, interesting, I'm doing a little bit of a deep dive diversion, but um, one of the family names that's associated with the Kendrick house, as we've discussed is Janny. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, and Janny is actually the, uh, um, my, my grandmother's paternal grandmother's maiden name. Uh-huh. Um, and I had the opportunity to have a great discussion with my uh, my uncle, who has studied. He, he's a history professor, a retired history professor from from Pennsylvania. So uh, I was like, okay, tell me more about this. And he said, well, the first thing you have to know about the Janis is they started out the Janais, and um, they were in France, mm-hmm. uh, and they uh, they came over um, with uh, with Bill in 1066. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I, and, and, <laughs> and somewhere along the line, uh, converted to became Quakers, uh, which I think was probably a bit far removed from the, uh, the original, uh, <laughs> the original knights and, and nobility coming over with, uh, William the Conqueror. So that's, uh, just a 
bit of fun trivia about me, but it is associated with the Kendrick House in Carthage as well. Uh, and then, although we're not going to do, we, we've covered things like Cherokee Black Magic, but um, associated with hoodoo is the, the very strong Native American connection feeding into uh, the North American practices. Right. And and often the, the sort of the broad discussion on the topic is the influences with Native Americans and and um, African-Americans uh, in the early days uh, developing the American version of hoodoo. Um, and as you said, often the, that um, the poor white settlers influence was left out. But what most people in that discussion leave out is that in society at that time, poor whites were pretty much in the same category uh, socially as um, Native Americans and um, in some aspects, even enslaved um, Americans. So um, they, uh, they interacted uh they interacted with the white poor settlers where they didn't with the landed gentry. And so there, the influences from Europe came in as well as Africa, as well as native American influences. They did. And it's something that I, I think we, we either don't see today or we pretend like it's not there. Um, uh, especially if we, you know, are really following the uh, the official position that uh, all Americans are created equal, and therefore we don't actually have an aristocracy. <clears throat> and then there's all the rest of us. But uh, you know, the especially, you know, you you take especially even you know take take uh, you know the Commonwealth for example, the Old Dominion, and the essentially the what was, you know, landed gentry of Virginia mm-hmm. to such a large degree. And then you look at the, uh, uh, the, all the people who were holding it up. Right. And something that I, I think comes along with that process is, and, you know, and we've seen the, I think for better or for worse, and I, I lean toward for better, by the end of the 20th century into, into today, that association with church is less of, you know, your, your business calling card for uh, respectability. Yeah. Uh, but that's something that has has taken a couple of hundred years to sort of shake its way out in the process. You back up, and of course, uh, in the early days of colonies, et cetera, when, yes, we are giving, you know, uh, religious freedom as part, uh, part and parcel with being an American, but at the same time, uh, adherence to a specific church and or specifically to Anglican. Uh, the Anglican Church in association with England being uh, a requisite to open certain doors. The opposite side of that, and of course that being associated with comparative wealth, the opposite side of that is that you have <laughs> your your poor um, 
the settlers who in some cases may be disenfranchised because they are of a different uh, Christian sect, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly Christian Protestant sect. But in some cases, they may be disenfranchised because they are following a different pattern of beliefs entirely, which may be the reason that they immigrated, first of all. And second, in the as the, the histories of America and North America are being written, these are people who uh, are not necessarily getting their history written because they're still hiding uh, their belief structures for fear of religious persecution. And I think that hoodoo fits well within that strata. Very much, very much so, um, and and often hiding in plain sight, so to speak. But you know, um, but very much off, trying to stay off the radar, um, and, or or um, or moving into. I, and I, the the hiding in plain sight to me is fascinating because you're you're dealing with oftentimes symbols, talismans, practices that portions of them can be displayed publicly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hex symbols on, uh, on, on the barns in Pennsylvania is one of them to me. Yeah. yeah. And then people who don't know the, the uninitiated into the occult, because that's, it, you know, it's literally what we're talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. Hidden knowledge is the uninitiated can look at it and say, Oh, that's so pretty. Or that's interesting. Exactly. Um, uh, and sometimes, you know, incorporated into um, quilts or things like that. And people think, oh, it's a pretty pattern. And that's all it is. But it was more than that. Very, very much so. And that that actually reminds me, um, I need to send uh, you a copy of the, the, the book cover. Uh, but in that, so again, weird tangent. I guess this is what happens when I just been up for way too long but uh i have a book on uh african-american quilts slave Mm -hmm. era and shortly thereafter oh neat and it is fascinating uh my mom bought it bought the book uh in the 1990s and there was a i a the the source citations are from a, from a purely academic standpoint, are somewhat questionable because at some level within the book, it basically says, yeah, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing to balance this out is that the, oh, the, the, the oral tradition, the oral histories um, passed down within particular families. And in this case, the book's primary source was uh, an elderly African-American woman in South Carolina, in mm-hmm. low country, talking about this, that this was coming from a uh, sociocultural context in which there weren't a lot of people running around documenting things during the 1860s and prior. So you kind of take what you can get. That said, the basic uh, approach is that quilts, along with obviously we know many other um, mediums of art, particularly uh, the spiritual, but in this case, we're talking about quilts. The quilts were used as signposts to guide escaping slaves on the Underground Railroad. 
yeah, they would be they would be hung like they would be hung out as someone was doing laundry to give signals that safe it's not safe or go this way that way etc. Um, and and I think that's a good illustration um, of the fact that uh, when when you talk about the history of hoodoo in America, a lot of this again was not being written down. Uh, you didn't have a lot of spells being written down or or, or practices. Uh, a lot of it was uh, word of mouth handed down from through a family or from one practitioner to an apprentice. Um, and so uh, you you get sources where you have someone that is relating what they have been told over time. And um, it's easy to try to, dispel credibility of it or to say, well, then this is all made up. None of it's real. It has no effect. Um, And that is from our modern perspective of the assumption of literacy, the assumption of documentation, um, whereas most of history has never been documented. Correct. It is. And as we moved into a, a postmodern era, quote unquote, um, I think that there is a mm, certainly the potential for a, a unique level of arrogance. Mm-hmm. I think so. And especially when information is, at least current information, is so readily available, too. Yes. It's. You know, and and I think a lot. Of course, there's a catch twenty two, but the the you know, the the assumption that if it isn't written down, it didn't exist. That is imperialist arrogance at its height. Mm-hmm. It is. By the same token, as you know, presuming that because it's written today, when the ability to to leave your mark you know, online, et cetera, is so easy, does not necessarily mean it's true either. Very, very true. Uh, (laughs) Reminding me of several memes. Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) One one involving Abraham Lincoln warning us about Photoshop. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But with with, with that background to know, how about we delve a little bit into sort of the motifs in the in the in the subject in the Ozarks to start with that we that Absolutely. are seen a lot and something that that seems consistent to me and I'll throw this out there just for discussion is that the motif or the the superficial motif, the end result, so to speak, of uh, of hoodoo, of conjure, um, of omen, of Native American lore, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. It is pretty readily acknowledged. You don't have to dig too terribly deep to get uh, a reference in here in the Ozarks. However, however, 
something that is oftentimes missing is this what I would classify as the source contextualization. Where is this coming from and how does it fit into this interlocking web or interconnected web uh, of culture within the Ozarks? Because oftentimes a single uh, reference will will tie back to multiple sources. And then we, at this point, at this end of the, the game, are, are left trying to parse out, is this, where did this come from? How did it, how did it get incorporated? And in the Ozarks, I find this fascinating because on the on on the surface level, the Ozarks were the area in which first of all, they were the area in which industry went around. Uh, yeah. the the Industrial Revolution came up to the Ozarks and diverged north and south <laughs> because it was hard to build railroads through the hills. Yeah. And it was simply more economic to go north and south where the land was much flatter. And mm-hmm. so, and of course, industry followed uh, the development of the railroads. And so <clears throat> the, the, the upland, the rugged upland plateau remained, while not unchanged, uh, was not drastically impacted by the Industrial Revolution until about 40 years after the rest of the nation. That said, in terms of the people movements and the old trails, uh, the Ozarks have been a crossroads and a hub of people moving through and people influencing from um, a wide variety of, of European old world uh, influence and settlement, uh, African-American uh, via slaves on the, uh, first of all, on the the Missouri River in, in mm-hmm. Lindsay, as well as uh, influenced up from the the deep south of uh, mm-hmm. of Arkansas, you have multiple Native American groups, First Nation peoples, uh, mm-hmm. either already in the Ozarks or beginning in the eighteen twenties being moved into the Ozarks. Yep, and so and. <clears throat> realistically even with the what i would classify and this is me getting way too mystical for my own good but the um the the potential of ancestral memory of much more ancient uh america's peoples that were, were the first of all the the bluff, the bluff dwellers but the mound builders whose Mm -hmm. um, cultures we know from Cahokia, we know from the Spiro Mounds, we know that they, in many cases, seem to exhibit strong similarities with some aspects of Aztec and Mayan culture. And these were peoples who had clearly existed over this space for generation after generation after generation. And to a certain degree, from almost a metaphysical standpoint, I can't help but think that they left their mark, even if we're unconscious of it, not just a physical mark. Exactly, exactly. And and, and certainly that is the tenor of, uh, of accounts of people discovering the mounds. Uh, that was their impression. And so you, you do have all of those factors coming together. Um, 
and and that being said, they're 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 sort of a grouping of certain uh, certain signs in that are viewed in the Ozark culture as signs of hoodoo and and witchcraft. Yes, and, and, and hoodoo and witchcraft go hand in hand. We we should say. That's what I was going to say for for the uninitiated and sometimes for the initiated. Um, heavy crossover or the inability to distinguish between uh, a hoodoo practitioner and a witch. Yeah. Often the answer there is, is it one or the other? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's very much the case. And I think for one reason is that these practices existed for so long before there were these kind of labels too. Agreed. And, and before internet searches to parse everything out and put it in a neat, tidy little digital box. Right. Yeah. And, and as we discussed, the, the essentially poor European white influence not only did have an impact in terms of the development of hoodoo, but also your mm, practitioner work of poor white Europeans is essentially your your witch, your traditional European witch. Yes. Yes. So that being said, yes, the, the signs in the Ozarks typically, of course, the big, biggest one is a, a booger dog uh, or a cat, sometimes a boar. Yes. Um, and no, it's not what you pick out of your nose. Um <laughs> And, and it, 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 I, I always find that amusing. Um, and there's there's different places in the Ozarks that have that label. Um, probably the largest space would be Douglas County, Missouri, which is known as Booger County. And people will say, well, what was it named that? Well, it goes back to so many stories coming out of that area of booger animals and, you know, it is a, a derivative, basically an anglicized and then Americanized version of boggard, which is a Scottish word for a ghost or a, a almost a poltergeist um, version, a meaning. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yes, there. It reminds me of an old Scottish tale. Uh, I'll, I'll make this very short, but it, I, it's one of my favorites um, of a of a family in a in a rural Scottish cottage who was being haunted by um, by one of these, and the the bogle or the and it's the. They, they finally, they, they've had it up to here with uh, the poltergeist activity mm -hmm. and they finally decide that they're going to move. And so they pack everything up, the kids, the household items, everything into the wagon and they move over the mountain to another, another cottage and, and, you know, are just about to get moved in um, when uh, the, the, <laughs> the voice of the poltergeist, the bugger, <laughs> plaintively comes out of uh, one of the one of the big stone jars that they brought with them and said, "Why are we moving?" 
they, <laughs> I like that. They, he was he was sad. Um, <laughs> and uh, and yeah. then the screaming started. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and then he was probably sadder. <laughs> right. Um, wonderful familiarization i think and it really speaks to the the scots irish influence uh you know immigration and settlement in the ozarks it it really does and in the ozarks then the boogers became associated with animals and shape-shifting so um you kind of have a dichotomy here you have phantom animals and then you have actual uh, creatures that are generally witches who have shapeshifted into these forms, um, e- even though they typically look the same. Um, and one, it's they're black, a large, yeah. um, an animal that's out of proportion, larger than it should be in real life. Uh, Usually a dog, a boar, a cat, um, could be even a bear, um, although that's not as common. Um, And so um, I love the fact that you have both that there, you know, you have these tales that it's a phantom and actually one out of Douglas County, out of Booger County. Uh, being one of my favorites from the Civil War, the one where um, the soldier uh, sees actually the phantom boar hog. And during the war, the it had become um, a belief that seeing one of these phantom animals was a death omen, that if you went into battle after seeing one, that you would die. And yes. so... They are encamped. They know they're going to fight the next morning. And he sees this booger boar and, you know, he's telling everyone, you know, he's afraid he's going to die. So they go into battle. He survives. He's bragging to everyone that he's beaten the curse because he didn't die. And then that very night, seeing around the campfire, he's cleaning his gun and it discharges accidentally and kills him. Yes. And the moral of the story is that you can't escape the fate of seeing this vision. Right. It is it is an inexorable death omen. And that uh, was something that popped into my head during the YouTube live. Uh, mm-hmm. Quick shout out. We are on YouTube. You can go check yeah. us out there. Uh, but not at this moment. We're talking here. Y'all can stay right here. Uh, but <laughs> but <laughs> that <clears throat> in, in the categories, uh, some of this is within hoodoo, within the scope of hoodoo. Some of it is, or, or hoodoo practice. Some of it is outside the scope of hoodoo practice. There is a, I, I think, a fairly rational assumption, a reasonable assumption, that if you are a skilled hoodoo practitioner, you can recognize the these various forms. Yes, or at least signs that 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 you know, sort of, sort of the tells. Um, and and again, part of those are it, you know, 
it, it isn't quite right. Uh, the, the dog is too big. It's bigger than even a wolf. Uh, the boar is unnaturally large. Uh, and then sometimes they're headless as well. Yes. Which but that's, is, a, that's a pretty good giveaway that it's probably not a regular dog or, or boar. Uh, <laughs> a giant headless animal. Exactly. I And, and so we, we have sort of three broad categories and can keep continuing to use the word broad category because it's important when you're dealing with this sort of stuff to not get things too tightly packed into an expectational cubicle or box uh, because there's this crossover. There's crossover and a an ingenious practitioner is, is not going to be stereotypical. Yes. So the the aspect of uh, a booger dog, particularly, or the black boar, as a death omen to me. Now, there, there may be references, uh, I suspect there are, uh, to West African as well as Native American mm-hmm. uh, cultures. But Imagine. what it really strikes me in this particular regard, especially with the Scots-Irish uh, and European lore that's associated, is it is heavily reminiscent, particularly directly influenced or nearly directly influenced uh, by the, the concept of the old pagan gods. Yes, I, I, I do believe so. That that these these animals, the appearance of these animals are uh, the the apparition or the, the omen of fate that the uh, the universe, so, so to speak, has said, this is going to happen. And, <laughs> and to, to quote going, well, here's your sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, and, and that it is inescapable, as is the reference with the Civil War soldier in Douglas County during the war. Exactly. And it, 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 that really is a good illustration of, the, of this concept. Um, and again, kind of relating to no, well, the Celtic gods and as well as Native American lore, uh, another motif that you see a lot in the Ozarks is um, a, a practitioner or witch um, turning into deer to to uh, play tricks upon hunters. Um, which, of course, is also very reminiscent of Dear, Dear Woman legends. Um, it is. You know, basically uh, uh, enticing men to their demise. It is. And they're, again, like not keeping, keep having, uh, having things in approximate, um, placing, placing phenomena in approximate spaces, but not neatly tucking them into boxes i think that's an important right. thing to keep in mind here because they're again with the crossover so we could assume i think it, i think it's fair to assume that if you are a hoodoo practitioner if you're a witch if this is part of your uh, lore and tradition if you were to observe a death omen you would probably recognize it as such yes yeah it kind of, probably kind of, it would be kind of hard to fool another practitioner yes now there is a possibility that a a death omen can be conjured for a variety of reasons but there's also the possibility that the death omen simply is 
I think we're back. Can you hear me? And we're back. Hopefully, and yes. we're back. Yeah. Not sure what happened there. <laughs> no, it's it froze on both sides for me. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it did here too. So, okay. um, but I think that, as you said, sometimes it just is. I think that is the most uh, uncomfortable possibility for most people to to face. I think so. And then on the on the next sort of the the, the other side of that, you have uh, the capacity of, or the, the the potentiality for which is to and who do practitioners to shift um, to to shape shift into other things. We see that throughout Ozark's lore, and then of course more of a crossover into uh, some Native American black magic, which we've discussed in depth. We won't get into in depth here, but I think it was worthy of reference of a crossover of witches as inhuman beings. And Mm -hmm. then the, the inhuman being as a witch shifting into an animal Mm -hmm. and that animal functioning almost as in some cases almost as a ghoul or almost as a vampire yes um very much so and and um and often at least in the ozarts those situations typically they have shifted into again a black animal whether it's a dog bear cat etc and um there's there's lore that to kill such a shape-shifting witch, it has to be a silver bullet, which, of course, goes straight back to French and Germanic lore of werewolves. It does. And uh, and with silver as a as as a as a ward, as a ward, as a purifying um, uh, metal. Yes, and and I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's it's somewhat topical. Um, silver is also associated with the moon and with the goddess Diana. That's true. I mean that that is true. Um, and often these these shapeshifters and these these phantoms as well are often seen at night under the moon, etc. So. Uh, there may be a connection, a connection there. Um, the the potentiality of essentially fighting fire with fire, so to speak, is an as an analogy. I I think that's fair. I think that's fairly fair to say there. Um, but I, I I find it interesting that you have these same sort of creatures that can be it can be just a phantom. Or it could be a, a, a physical creature that is a is a witch that shapeshifted. I, I find it interesting that again, you might see it, and it could be one or the other, unless unless you are well versed in this and and have some tells. Yes. Um, and then another very common motif is the. Um, basically warnings uh, brought by nocturnal birds, particularly owls, 
especially uh, out, sometimes whippoorwills. Yes, but um, that uh, typically being uh, a sign that a practitioner is watching you or acting against you, um, but not so much that they have shifted into that creature. It, it, to me, it has a very Norse feel of Odin's ravens almost. It, it really can. And, and what I think is, is interesting, just in terms of the, the amalgamation of cultures mixing together over several hundred years, uh, a lot of that aspect of the familiar, uh, particularly with owls, owls, in, owls and whippoorwills, especially owls, as a strongly negative uh, black mm-hmm. omen, is associated with Native American lore, uh, Cherokee yeah. lore, and used to great effect in at least one short story by H.P. Lovecraft, and. At the same time, like just in terms of my uh, my ancestral tradition, we have a great issue with snakes, but we love owls. Yeah. So and and uh, and and whippoorwills. I was considered the you know hearing hearing an owl, whether it's a you know a large owl or screech owl, um, uh, hearing a whippoorwill at night. All of these being actually you know in my personal family tradition we always took those to be good signs and so it was, it, was, it was a surprise to me to find out that they were considered you know highly negative in other cultures and that's that's the same because i i mean to be honest i was always taught by my grand both my grandmothers that whippoorwill hearing a whippoorwill was actually a good sign um yes. yeah and, and so that, I always found that odd when I when I started hearing that it that it was not. Um, so some somewhere there's that amalgamation. <laughs> it it is, and I I wonder. Well, this is it's it, at this point it's just conjecture, but I do find it interesting. Interesting that that you and I quite separately actually grew up with with whippoorwills and owls at almost as good luck almost as a good luck sign yeah definitely i mean actually my mother did did have some owls as good luck signs yeah so that uh and of course we used to have bats that we'd you know come play in the house but that <laughs> that's another story entirely bats were, were not we're not seen as a bad thing either so. no i i've but, never seen Seen that. But, it, but it may go back to we we come from a, a very similar ancestral background too. Very very true, and it does make me wonder in terms of you know the 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 point of similarity is Celtic settle, settlement. Yeah, very true. And not <laughs> all not all of the Celtic settlements were you know, poor whites, uh, some of them were, were landed gentry when they were on their way over and et, et cetera. But a lot were, a lot were, uh, coming, um, particularly the, the Scots Irish from, uh, from Ulster were, were coming as, as, uh, to a degree Protestant refugees, uh, attempting to find, uh, a better life where they were escaping famine and war. 
Very true. Very, very true. I think one thing to say, too, in this area, when we're talking about practitioners, is that there's a strong belief that um, in in this actually um, is in that um, newspaper article from 1904 that includes uh, a uh, interview with a hoodoo priest um, yes. that um, and a hoodoo is a practitioner that Correct. basically um, uh, that uh, they are born not not made so that you either are you're either going to be one or not which is very similar to sort of the belief uh, belief in some sectors in old Europe about witchcraft, as well as shapeshifters and things like that, uh, as well as um, uh, psychics and seers. Um, that um, you, you either are born with it or not. Um, and I, I do I do find. Um, interesting i've not seen which source it, it's under that you do typically traditionally hear that signs that uh of a, a future um practitioner or someone with second sight is born with cal or is albino or um also a third thing is having green eyes so there yes. there you go so i never i guess i advertised the world with my green <laughs> eyes, so. which is you know it, i think that it's again these are things that have in various ways worked their way into the the substrate of modern consciousness but again just a little bit below um, right i'm gonna have to check on my puppy for just a second okay but we have this st louis republic article from 1904 in regards to a hoodoo murder um uh-huh. if you could give folks just a quick rundown of the case okay. uh, i would be right back okay yeah this is interesting because so little uh, of these kind of things are are actually in print and and recorded and this was actually a murder trial that went on in, I believe, St. Charles, uh, Missouri, which is uh, just barely north of St. Louis. But it's very indicative of hoodoo throughout the region. Um, And um, there's testimony in the trial of Price Edwards. Um, He was an African-American man and who ultimately was convicted of murder and that um, the testimony showed that people in the area still believed, uh, as they say, quote, the quaint superstitions and customs that prevailed among uh, people before the Civil War. So um, by this point, again, people are thinking these things are kind of fading into the past or, or just a legend. But uh, it says um, the most interesting one set forth and the, only, and the one surrounded by the most mystery is the fact of the hoodoo. Edwards, the convicted man, is believed to be a genuine hoodoo and the sentence condemning him to death, strange as it may seem, is received by people with delight. 
um, Philip Hubbard uh, on the witness stand swore to Edwards' uncanny powers. And by the way, uh, Mr. Hubbard was as well a, uh, an African-American man. Um, and uh, he asserted that it was uh, his using them that Henderson and Castillo, the the other um, men implicated in the murder of a Joe Butner, were influenced to assist in the crime. And in pop culture, we see the, this now as um, use of voodoo uh, on zombies to do a, a priest's bidding. But basically, that's kind of what they're describing as as having happened. Um, and um, in fact, he says in here, hoodoos are born, not made. The first all important thing is to discover the proper herbs from which one may gain the power, and they are not the same for any two persons. And the search for the proper ones often consumes many years investigation. When the herbs are found, they must be dug from the ground with great secrecy and ceremony. So basically, you have to find your own form of uh, hoodoo. And um, what works for you doesn't necessarily work for someone else. But um, and he goes on to say that, you know, that uh, to make... um, something really work you want something of your victim you know a piece of clothing um is best so that you can wrap the herbs in it which of course would become your fetish uh your fetish bag or uh some people would say a hats bag um uh ironically in the ozarks i've also heard um that instead of a bag a bowl would you be used interesting um, a fetish bowl um, that it, it, it would have the the contents of the spell seen in the bowl and it placed somewhere, usually under a floorboard or something like that. Um, but again, again, that's from accounts that I've been told. Um, and um, and I've even asked why why a bowl and not a bag and and um, one person told me that what they had always been told is if if it didn't have to be moved, you put it in a bowl and left it somewhere. Okay. Um, I don't, and, I, and maybe it's just personal preference. I don't know. Um, but, um, and, and again, they talk about, being in proximity to the victim, staring at them, almost, you know, pretty much the evil eye in yes. um, Romani beliefs. So, I mean, what you're hearing here is very much almost Eastern European um, uh, lore there. Um, and so um, it's it's really interesting Um you know, the, the detail here, this is one of the more detailed accounts that I've ever seen uh, actually in writing. It is, and it, it makes me think it, it, a reference. Um, <clears throat> and a little bit of a paraphrase on this, but uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, referenced Hudu as, quote, that vein of vague superstition which characterizes the uneducated. Yes. And, 
I mean, and and I, I can I can see him saying that because he was such an advocate for for education and that education would be the means for African-Americans to, uh, pull, you know, to uh, succeed after the after the, the war in the latter 1800s. Um, yeah. there, there's also an account involving Frederick Douglass that while he was um, escaping slavery and he did escape multiple times yeah i think twice before he succeeded um that a hoodoo warned him he would fail yes and he did um so um you know a, a lot of it is perception and of course the pop culture one pop culture motif is um that these practices only work if you already believe in them Right. But traditionally, I, it would be the opposite. I was going to say, you know, in, in so many cases and the 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 actual the literal practice of hoodoo is uh, heavily framed by Delta Blues. Yes. And. Yeah. You know, a, a continuing motif. What what we see in in terms of the the practical use of hoodoo throughout the Ozarks, as well as as elsewhere, and elsewhere as a general rule, being the Deep South, as well as the Upland South. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, our three people groups that we're looking at the poor white settlers, uh, the uh, African slaves and the Native Americans were heavily um, in contact one, with one another in the upland south. Yes. Yeah. Probably most there. And then with expansion and migration came west. Yes. And, and, uh, you know, heavily. So, but you you look at uh, you know really the the framing, the contextualization and framing of hoodoo in culture. The the first and best place to look is traditional blues, traditional Delta blues. Yes, and there's lots of references that people probably don't even associate. Yes, um, and, and with that. A, a, a common theme, I believe, is that the, the person who is being hoodooed doesn't necessarily have to believe in it for it to work. Right, right. And and that's that's what I think is interesting with sort of a lot of the pop culture the last, say, 50 years is that, um, that um, idea of... Oh, it's, it's the scientific mind, so to speak, uh, saying if you don't believe it has no effect. Yeah. Um, and that is controverts, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of practice on three continents. It is as well as <clears throat> what, what appears to be. um similarity of practice from three continents before 
they started getting together here. That's true, which I always find very interesting because to me, it means it says that there's more likely that there is substance here if if it grew up in that disparate of of areas separated by oceans. Um, and then when it came together, it was a very gentle mingling, so to speak. Yes. And again, I think a, a more mm, postmodern perspective would say that these people groups got together. Uh, we don't necessarily perhaps solely for socioeconomic reasons. And then they sort of created their own thing and said that it was related. I think that that is a bit myopic because what it appears is that one of the reasons for getting together, one of the reasons for the sharing of information when in other instances, these three groups were quite at odds from, mm-hmm. from purely ethnic reasons, that the, the that there was shared commonality of practice it was one area that there was common ground. And to me, again, that is unbelievably fascinating. Coming back to the, the 1904 St. Louis Republic article on hoodoo, uh, and you, I know you've already referenced this, but this I, I want to dig into for just a moment. Hoodoos are born, not made. The first and all important thing is to discover the proper herbs from which one may gain the power. The herbs are not the same for any two persons and the search for the proper ones often consumes many years investigation. When the herbs are found, they must be dug from the ground with great secrecy and ceremony. And somehow I can just hear the, the, uh, uh, the, the ancestral voice of W.E.B. Du Bois screaming across the century <laughs> going, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, that uh, So I'm, I'm going to take a, a, uh, a modern or perhaps a postmodern uh, critique perspective for just a moment because it seems a little bit in contrast to some of the other aspects of hoodoo. Mm-hmm. And... Basically, you know, from a, a cursory view, and I think it is on a cursory view that this doesn't make sense. It's on a deep view that it begins to contextualize. Uh, the cursory view basically says it's super secret, but it's completely different for everybody. So have at it and either it works or it doesn't. And if it does work, great. And if it doesn't work, um, too bad for you. And if it does work, it only works because everybody else believes that it works and you just got everybody buffaloed. Possibly. <laughs> and if you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's just a. It's. Uh, you know, that that aspect, which. Mm, is is difficult to wrap the mind around and take. Uh, really seriously as a practice, which I think that much of hoodoo can be taken seriously as a practice. Yes. But on the other hand, you know, I I think that there is also at times sort of woven in there some intentional subterfuge so that, you know, to discourage outsiders from meddling or trying to learn, you know, we don't need too many practitioners. Um, 
that kind of thing. Um, and mm-hmm. if outsiders are dismissing it because it doesn't make sense, then it's easier to operate and hide in, in plain sight. Right. Right. So in its, uh, in its ephemeral and seemingly nonsensical nature, it's basically functioning as a very high-end psyop, for, but only from the ground up. Grassroots. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it a lot. It is something that... Uh, I find really interesting. So the reference that hoodoo conjurers were often black people um, with power over white people. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's a, uh, that idea. And I think, again, the adherence of that, it was even more so with voodoo. Um, but um, it became a way to have an influence over, if it wasn't your literal uh, enslaver, uh, the sort of the moneyed interests that were um, perceived as keeping people poor. Right. And, you know, we, we see individuals, and, and I think from a very common sense perspective, we see individuals turning to hoodoo in an attempt to find justice in you know in the in a in a cultural connotation in which um you know traditional the traditional justice system may be very uh you know either unavailable or simply isn't trusted exactly um yeah because the the cavalry was not coming for the for them right right I, i I, I agree wholeheartedly there. Um, I, I, I want to shift to a, a couple of um, topics that are purely American for a moment. Yes. One um, it comes from the from the Wyandot um, people. Yes. And uh, that's the lore of the Hustradu. Um and it, ha- it, it, it is reminiscent to me of hoodoo and voodoo um, in the outcomes, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily the, the practice itself, but that um, it's an evil spirit um, that inhabits a recently deceased person, so inhabits corpses and causes them to rise from the grave and to devour the living. Yes. Um, and um, so you, you have um, a bit of vampire lore and a bit of you know the undead zombie motif going mm-hmm. hand in hand. So you have, you know, you sort of basically have a vampire in a zombie. Um, right. In the in the outcome, but an interesting uh, part of the lore is that there is an effective protect protective ward of of redbud uh, branches from a redbud tree. Yes, uh, and 
you know, I've heard a lot of lore about different um, plants and and trees in this in these kinds of things. As far as I am remembering, this is the only instance for a redbud that I know. Agreed. And, you know, in terms of redbud lore, <clears throat> most of it, you know, the, the, the only other dominant aspect of redbud lore is, is a bit of a stretch. It's, it's sweet, but it's a bit of a stretch. Um, well, actually, it isn't. I was thinking of the dogwood. Sorry. The dogwood has a really sweet uh, Easter tide Christian legend. The yeah, red bud is also referred to as the Judas tree and is said to be the tree that Judas hanged himself from and mm-hmm. was, was cursed afterwards. Uh, it isn't. And uh, the red bud's native to North America. So there goes that. And uh, to, to explain, explain the fact that the red bud tree is not large enough. It doesn't grow large enough to, to no. hang from the, uh, the legend explains that. And says that after it was used as a hanging tree, Judas hanging tree, that uh, it it was so con- filled with such contrition that it never grew any bigger afterwards. Before it was a huge tree. None of that is true, um, no. but it is indicative of the fact that red buds were noted in some way as having uh, you know an ancestral, folkloric, or spiritual component. I find it particularly interesting in terms of the Wyandotte tradition because it is clearly being associated with warding from evil. Yes. Now, and I, I do have to say that, see, I grew up with the hearing from my grandmother Livingston that Redbud was good luck. And yeah. and in fact, uh, she she had a, a Redbud tree at her house in Arkansas City, Kansas, that I'm not even sure how old it was, but it had come from, uh, uh, I think, her mother or grandmother, I'm not sure. And she insisted that, that when my parents would move, that they take a cutting of the tree and plant it where they lived. And in fact, we still have redbud tree in the yard at the farm that came from her tree Mm. so uh i just grew up say you know hearing that you know it was good luck to have a redbud tree agreed agreed and redbuds of course do grow native in the ozarks Mm -hmm. uh that's uh and they are they're extraordinarily beautiful there's the the hybridized you know, more bountiful hybridized versions that you can buy at the store, but and uh, just in in the in the mountains, they do grow naturally. Was there? I'm just curious. Was there? Um, w- was there any particular lore about placement, et cetera, or was it just make sure that it's in the yard? It was just that you, that you were to have one in your yard, and no particular placement that I'm aware of. Okay. I, I think that's really interesting. I grew up with a love of red buds, but not, and we had one in the yard, but mm-hmm. not, um, not, not necessarily looking at it as specifically for good luck, just because it was, we understood, I think intuitively, and we understood on a certain level that it was a very special tree and it was something that you wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I, I remember my grandmother always being very insistent that it was that it was good luck to have one. 
that is neat to know. I, I'd not fully made that conceptual cross. I, I mean, uh, I, and I'm, like I said, I don't really know why, but I, I, I can remember her saying that, you know, um, so she definitely viewed it as a, basically as a ward or, you know, good luck or protection. So if anyone, if anyone has any stories that would add to that, I'd love to hear it. So absolutely. I, and, and, and possibly as a place to speaking of wards and the potential we, um, we, we've talked about the history of the Wyandots, um, and talking, just perhaps concluding with uh, some of the traditional hoodoo wards, okay, uh, as uh, well as well as the as the Sukiant uh, and the Buhag. Okay, uh, and the Sukiant might be a good explanation because um, um, its lore specifically has components that's very typical of wards and protection it does it does and the 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 thing to oh sorry was getting distracted by giant wolves um (laughs) that that uh uh, something that's easy to overlook, uh, a good aspect of hoodoo, and you do see this uh, throughout the Ozarks, is uh, wards against evil. Yes. Um, that's true. I guess we can start there. Um, uh, witch pads um, are one. Yes. Which are um, three-sided thorns or pieces of wood carved um, um, into triangular spikes, basically, and then buried in the path to the door um, so that uh, some, you know, a practitioner can't cross it. Um, uh, Over time, sort of the Christian version of that became it was tri-sided because it represented the Trinity. Um, but that idea goes back much further and uh, three-sided symbols typically are seen as wards throughout European history, including uh, for the Celts, the triple spiral. Yes. So um, I, th- I think it's more three-sided in that traditional sense is where it originated. And then it, it acquired sort of the Protestant connotation, um, even though I'm not really sure why the Protestants seem to adhere to that more than Catholics, even though they associate with the Trinity. I, I'm not sure why. Anyway, um, also, um, witch bottles, um, yes. which often you would you would hang glass bottles uh, from a bush, or um, some people would slide them onto branches. Um, those hanging would add to almost like a wind chime, and it's supposed to scare off uh, spirits and and practitioners. Um, Hank blue, of course, is um, was often used to paint uh, porch ceilings, uh, uh, window sills, shutters, um, 
and it was the idea that it would confuse spirits, but presumably witches as well, um, because they can't cross water. Right. And, you know, and part of and <clears throat> the uh, uh, the bottle trees, the, the formation of bottle trees, mm-hmm. uh, along with Oh, the, the, the belief that evil travels in straight lines. Yeah. Evil travels in straight lines. So you make a curving path. And then at the juncture points of the curving path, place the, the bottle trees. Mm-hmm. And evil will find itself, will, will work its way into the bottles and the morning sun and become trapped by night and then be destroyed when exposed to the morning sun. Yes, yes, which I find sort of interesting because ley lines are have always been associated with positive energy and yes. spirituality. Um, and of course, are generally straight lines. Um, um, but there's also other lore that you know, that the devil can't walk a straight line. Yes. So, I mean, it, it's, you have contradictory lore there. You really do. Um, of course, something that seems to cross pollinate between um, low country Caribbean and European tradition is that a variety of spiritual beings count things obsessively yes and so spilling spilling rice salt um anything like um anything you have that there's a lot of marbles uh needles i've even heard anything that they have to stop and count and there is some some lore um that seems to be it's more pop culture, modern lore that I think is a crossover from this, that that applies to vampires. Yes. And there's, there's again, that, that weird cross, um, you know, the Sukiant, which we'll get into in a moment, has a lot of similarity with aspects of vampirism. Yes, but they come from very different traditions. Very different traditions. And you know, at, at the same time, and, and I think that this is, you know, worthy of, of a little bit of analysis, we, we often view uh, these disparate elements of folklore through an admittedly uh, age of Aquarius, new age traditions. Yes, that, that does seem to happen a lot. Yes. Uh, and something that is consistent with a, you know, the patina of, of, of new age belief structure is oftentimes a lack of evil. Yeah. And that is very much at a cross purpose with the, the origin lore, mm-hmm. uh, something that is consistent with uh, the 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 african lore something that's cons- very consistent with the native american lore mm-hmm. is that a number of these entities uh the 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 cherokee black magic witch uh the sukiant 
as two prime examples, the Hustradu uh, from the Wyandots, that these things are absolutely evil. They are, and they're they're um, they're cannibalistic in the sense that they do devour human beings um, in in the literal sense. Uh, sort of the the exception to that in the, in these origins is in Africa that uh, you you did you did have that cannibalistic aspect, but they they um, consumed people's souls, not the body. Yes, which from a certain perspective could even be considered even more horrifying. Yes. So you you, you could end up with, a, you know, a, a corporal body without a soul and your soul being lost. Um, so uh, or at least separated. And so um, it, it is interesting that you have these various variables that are, are fairly consistent. But do you want do you want to talk about the sucking out a little bit? Absolutely. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite because it's horrifying. <laughs> uh, and, and it is, I knew that. That's why I let you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it is part of Caribbean folklore. I think that's an important point to note. Now you can say, well, what's that got to do with the Ozark? Well, obviously there's a cross um, population or cross-populating uh, lore from uh, the Caribbean to the Low Country. In the Low Country, we typically see this as the boo hag. Uh, yeah. There are some definite similarities there, but we also see um, the this lore coming into um, the Delta. And we see mm-hmm. it coming into to, you know in the New Orleans region, and uh, both in a. Uh, from a historic perspective, as well as a modern perspective, we have cross-population of these belief structures into the Ozarks, Osceola, Missouri, back before all of the before it got burned down uh, yeah. <laughs> during the war, and and also before the uh, you know back when it was a port city had a direct tie to New Orleans, something that we saw and, and continue to see. Uh, since Hurricane Katrina, is uh, considerable migration uh, yeah. of, uh, of of people up from Louisiana, and, and in some cases, you know that that you know uh, everything in plain sight. But in other cases, particularly with uh, with individuals from low economic status fleeing uh, the that part of the country in the face of having everything that they knew being destroyed by the hurricane uh, are individuals who are practitioners or heavily steeped in this lore. And we do see a rise in uh, this type of practice in the Ozarks after, you know, after 2004. So, and, and of course the, 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 the 1904 uh, reference in the, in the St. Louis Republic is referencing St. Charles, and, mm-hmm. uh, and and strongly connects all of that. So, just because it's Caribbean doesn't mean that it isn't associated. And uh, again, we with the Sukiyam, we have one of these entities that 
really defies the the three the three boxes in terms of which one to put it in. Um, it appears as a reclusive old woman by day. By night, uh, she strips off her wrinkled skin and puts it in a mortar. Uh, and her true her true form is a fireball that in which she flies across the dark sky in search of a victim. The Sukiyan can enter the home of her victim through any sized holes like cracks, crevices, or keyholes. So instantly without wards, anyone is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sukiyan sucks people's blood from their arms, legs, necks, and soft parts while they sleep, leaving blue black marks on the body in the morning. Again, now we've, 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 we we've had your 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 traditional european hag we've ha- we have the spook light we have saint elmo's fire and now we have the vampire um yeah. if the sukiant draws too much blood is believed the victim will either die or become a sukiant or perish entirely um leaving the person's killer to assume assume their skin so it is also vampirically reproductive in this way mm-hmm. um the sukiant practices black magic which suggests that it's some form it is human ish mm-hmm. and and is a black magic witch and this in uh, brazil it's referenced that sukians trade their victims blood for evil powers um and with a demon that resides in the silk cotton tree so uh, to expose the Sukiyant, one should heap rice around the house or, uh, or at the village crossroads as the creature will be obligated to gather every grain, grain by grain, uh, before dawn and caught out in the open in the sunlight without its skin, it dies. Um, to destroy the Sukiyant, it's interesting, the Sukiyant is consistently referenced as female. Uh, to destroy her, a coarse salt must be placed in the mortar containing her skin, so she perishes, unable to put the skin back on. There is, of course, a much more benign version of this in Celtic lore. It's called a selkie, the yeah. seal people. Uh, belief in the Sukiyans is still preserved to an extent in Guyana, uh, Suriname, and other and some Caribbean islands, including Dominica, Haiti, and Trinidad. So, um, interestingly enough, if you're a black magic practitioner, you might want to hunt a Sukiyant because her skin is useful. Yeah. <laughs> And there, and and uh, in um, uh, Grenada and uh, Barbados as well. These are these are parts of the lore, and there is very little difference. There are some, there are some differences, but there's a lot more similarities than differences between the Sukiant of the Caribbean and the Boohag of South Carolina Low Country. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you can definitely see see that crossover. Um, and you know, again, um, you know, it there are um, various um, tales of spook lights, uh, etc., that travel through people's homes, etc., that you know basically are impervious to. Uh, barriers Um, and so we just view we view those in a very different connotation than they would have been 
300 years ago. Right. Now that is, to me, that's a really interesting cross-reference because um, of course in, uh, you know, the Hornet spook light, Joplin spook light, whatever you want to call it, your spook light. <laughs> I'm just going to call it Lisa's spook light at this point. That's <laughs> <fine>. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll have hate mail now. <laughs> <laughs> but with, uh, you know, the surrounding farms in that area, um, and as well as sometimes vehicles, the spook light just moves through whatever it wants to. Yeah, through houses, through barns, through vehicles. Um, and um, although I don't know of any accounts of people actually being attacked by it, but um, yeah. if I, I certainly could see how things like this could be um, observed and taken that way. Um, and then perhaps perhaps there is something more to it. It could be uh, a, a takeaway that I, you know, a, a bit of this that I really hadn't put together. The the aspect of the Buhag or the Sukiyan being able to pass, you know, to get through any crevice sort of thing mm-hmm. um, could actually be a way of trying to describe uh, spook light activity saying, how did it get in the house? I don't know. It just got in. Yeah. And that's very, I mean, that's very possible. I mean, because, I mean, I've, I've heard a number of people personally describe it passing through windshields and the cars and things like that. So, um, right. you know, so might not need a keyhole or, or a crack if it can just go through the glass. So. Right. Very, very true. So I think the takeaway is paint everything in paint blue. Everything. Everything, including yourself. <laughs> Just become a Smurf and you'll be safe from the Sukiyan. <laughs> or take your chances. Just something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that's an image I didn't need, but. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to show up the Paracon completely blue. (laughs) You want me to ride in the car with you for hours like that? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Okay. Oh, well, perhaps not, but, you know, just to be on the safe side. Here you go. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Okay. That took a weird twist. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up with the Smurfs. What can I say? I, uh... And Andorians. Don't forget the Andorians. Okay. I don't think that that comes into this legend, though. Probably not. But if we ever found an Andorian, we could ask them if they've ever been haunted by a, by a boo hag. And if the answer is no, then they're the right color blue. Perhaps.
Are there any other boards you want to talk about besides Snark Blue? Oh, besides that, you know, the, the, so, some really obsessively obvious ones, so obvious that they, they are cliche, um, but they do have a really strong uh, socio-cultural ancestry, particularly in terms of uh, European ties, are horseshoes and rabbit's feet, rabbit's foots, feet. That's true. That's true. Um, you don't see rabbit's feet near as much as you used to. Nope. Um, and so makes you wonder if, if, um, bad luck has increased in proportion to the use of rabbit's feet going down. It's, um, it's, it, we, we may need to launch an investigative survey. Okay. We'll put that on the bottom of the list. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent response. Um, <laughs> but it is funny. <laughs> I well, and then the um, oh, of course, part of the reference to a horseshoes is the is is the metal is the iron. Yes, that's true. Um, as, as being protective, um, I've also heard versions. You know, of course, it being. Um, um, yeah, um, it, it's been a long day. Upside down, you uh, being trapping spirits uh, yes. at the doorway. Um, another another ward, and we've mentioned before, is you know cedar boughs over the the doorways. Absolutely. Um, and um, and I, you can uh, find references for other plants or tree uh, branches as well. Um, right. Willow is one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even the, you know, the, the, the aforementioned red bud. And yeah. A, a consistent aspect uh, is that various plants and or trees have innate, pardon me, innate warding effects. Yeah. And so, of course, these days they were popular as sage. Right. Very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, smudging with Palo Santo uh, as yeah. well. And <clears throat> that is something that is less popular or less well known is, is what we've already begun to reference, which is planting certain things, growing certain things in your yard or around mm-hmm. your house, et cetera, to, to function as uh, one part good luck charm, another part ward against evil. Very true. Very true. Uh, I guess one of the obvious things that we should list, since we're talking about hoodoo and voodoo, is goofer dust. Yes. And uh, and what is goofer dust? Well, I mean, I have seen different recipes, but often the main ingredient is ground brick. Okay. Okay. 
Interesting. And what? And is it is it predominantly a ward? Yes. Uh, well, it can be used. It can use offensively or defensively. Um, it can be used as as a protection in brick in general. Also, uh, is um, there's various lore about um, burying bricks at the corners of your house, or the corners of your land, um, as protection. Um, and I think in part it's the making the it's based on the making of the brick out of soil, clay, etc., and then using using that. Um, but again, a lot of it came down to what did people who did not have a lot of money have available to them to use? Right. And uh, I, I no, can't help ahead. but, I was just going to say, I can't help but mm, theoretically conjecture uh, the association with the hearth. True. And and I do think that that is a component. Um, and- for people who, for people who might not know, in uh, European lore, uh, the hearth is often the the center point of conjuring. It is, it is, and I and I think around a campfire is, um, particularly from the African traditions and, and the Native American traditions. So that that makes sense. Another thing that people don't think of as obvious as as wards or or protection uh, is basically different foods uh, as well as alcohol and tobacco. Yes. And of course that, and that is, is definitely making some strong references to voodoo tradition. Voodoo, uh, but also some voodoo um, as well Um, um, because you are incorporating plants um, but um, very much used in, in voodoo traditions. Um, offerings of, of food, usually white, rice, milk, eggs, uh, things like that, sometimes even flour. Um, yeah. Then um, tobacco, and usually to be effective, it has to be smoked or burnt yes um and then alcohol uh in voodoo it's traditionally rum but you can use other alcohol mm-hmm. so i've seen other bourbon or whiskey used and and i can't help but you know my mind can't help but jump over to the uh, uh you know offering whiskey to the fairies exactly you know, I think it's very much the same thing, offering whiskey or ale. Um, and um, so similar traditions grew up in three continents. They did. And, and, and they mingled. And yes, it came together. And uh, into a large degree, uh, less or so now, but still to a large degree, remains uh, under the radar, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Very much so. But it can be in plain sight, too. 100%. A lot of these things, a lot of these things can be done and are done, and other people aren't aware of it if they don't know what to look for. Very, very true. 
and uh, and that's okay. Yes, <laughs> it works just the same. Exactly, it goes it goes back to whether it's destiny or really. Hmm. And we're back. And we're back. That may be a good place to see it. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, we hope to see lots and lots of you at uh, in Caney, Kansas this weekend. And yes. or at many of the other locations that we will be at this autumn. We wish everyone a wonderful and festive first day of autumn tomorrow. And uh, we will be back here. Dark Ozarks, first on YouTube Live, then on Facebook Live next Wednesday. That's right. And then catch the podcast on Branson Podcast Network. Absolutely. It's going to be great. Good night, everyone. Night. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Alex.